Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. The world is kind of a dumpster fire right now. This is a, a cover of Time magazine near the end of 2020, and Time contended that 2020 was the worst year ever, or some people are calling it the, the year from hell. So I got thinking about like, okay, is that true, at least in my lifetime, and uh, maybe take you back and think through 2020 if you if you dare go there. Uh, January 2020 is when the first uh, American was diagnosed with coronavirus. And at that point, we're just like, what's that? Did, that's not a big deal. And we'll be through that quickly. And uh, to date, there has been uh, over the last 20 months, 219 cases of COVID around the world, 4.5 million deaths in America alone. There's been 41 million cases and 660,000 deaths. To put that in proportion, that's more American deaths than came from World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War combined, and there's no end in sight. Uh, then on top of that, we had the, the brutal, horrific death of, of George Floyd, which uh, brought to, to public consciousness and, and conversation, long overdue conversations about race and racial justice which they quickly got hijacked by uh, vigilantes bent on violence. And we've seen uh, the product of that in our own uh, downtown. Then we had the, uh, if you remember this, the Australian wildfires, if you remember that, and we've had many wildfires close to home. But the Australian wildfires in particular, I did some research on that, 250 million acres burned. And it's estimated that over 1 billion animals perished in those wildfires. The smoke uh, went 22 miles in the air. And of course, we've had plenty of wildfires in our area. Last year at this time, my family was fleeing our home and, and many uh, others, I'm sure, that are listening experienced the same. And then this was personal as, as a longtime Laker fan, go Blazers as well, but the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gigi, I remember someone this was before COVID, like grabbed me at the back of church one day and showed me uh, the, 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 the news coming out. And uh, that was devastating and shocking to all of us. And then we kind of like 2020 got to an end, th- seemed like things were simmering down, celebrated Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but I was like, okay, we, we turned the corner and it's going to get better from here. And then January 6th, people are storming our capital. And then the Delta variant came and then planes full of Afghan refugees and Haiti and the American South gets hit by earthquakes and hurricanes and it just seems like there, there's no end. Uh, here's a statement I want you to be pondering throughout the message today. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. That line comes from an old movie called Grand Canyon and one of the main characters of that is played by actor Danny Glover, Lethal Weapon fame. And in one of the opening scenes, uh, a person, I think, leaving a Laker game, uh, tries to bypass the traffic, is in a very nice automobile, and gets lost in an area of town late at night he should not be lost in, and then gets worse, car breaks down, and calls for a tow truck. His car is quickly surrounded by, by a group of young men who, who uh, strip down the car with him in it, and then threaten to do him harm. 
at while that's all going on, Danny Glover's the, the, the tow truck driver. He pulls up and just doesn't pay them any notice and starts to hook up the car to tow it away. And uh, the leader of this, these young men get in Danny Glover's face. That's the scene. And Danny Glover says these words. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you, uh, maybe, uh, you, you, you don't see it that way, but it's not supposed to be that way. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can, and that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. And then here's the line. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And man, there's so much truth in that. There's not just truth, that's, that's gospel truth. And we're going to talk about that idea today, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. We're in week two of a series we're calling The Lost Gospel, kind of a little mini-series before we start a longer series. And what I was arguing last week, let me do a little bit of a review. I'm sure none of you missed church, but just to review from last week, we're arguing that, that many of us uh, follow a shrunken gospel, and that's led to devastating consequences for the church. It's led to followers of Jesus not looking a whole lot like Jesus. And what we mean by that is that we believe that the gospel is simply and only that Jesus died for our sins so that one day when we die, we can go to heaven. And that is part of the gospel, and it's an important part, but it's only part of the gospel. The true gospel or the, the full gospel is so much more. This word gospel is euangelion. It means good news, or uh, I argued last week, to think about it through a new paradigm of calling it the good story. And it's the story of Israel's long-promised king, the Messiah, or the Christ in the Greek, coming and not only being king of Israel, but being king of the entire world. And that's Jesus showing up on the scene saying, I am the king, I'm coming to bring my kingdom, and his kingdom is invading earth and will eventually make all things right. That's in direct challenge to the Caesars of, of, of his day in the first century that were claiming to be uh, the savior and God of the world, claiming to bring good news to the world. The followers of Jesus and Jesus himself uh, contrasted that and put forth a different gospel. So the gospel is, is not just that Jesus died for our sins so we can spend eternity with God, it is that, but it's so much more. We define it as, as uh, the invitation for anyone and everyone to trust in Jesus the Christ as their life-giving king so uh, they can enter his kingdom where all things are being made right. That's a much more full, robust uh, representation of the gospel that we see throughout uh, the New Testament. So this week, we're going to kind of go at it at a different angle, but really with the same goal, to show how big and beautiful the gospel is, that it's, that it's bigger and better than we could ever imagine. And to do that, we're going to try to figure out the question or the problem that the gospel is trying to solve. And I think that we'll see that it's a massive problem, and that means that our gospel has to be massive in order to answer it. So let me pray for us as we get going, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in to our scripture. God, thank you so much uh, for your great love for us uh, today. Uh, thank you for the hearts and minds of each person listening online, whether they're listening on headphones, driving in a car, with people in their homes, alone in their homes, wherever they are, God, we pray that your spirit would be active, uh, cause us to have ears to hear, help us to pay attention and not be distracted. And may your word come alive and may you use the message today to reshape all of us into uh, more faithful and committed and representative uh, disciples of your son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. All God's people said, amen. Genesis 3, 1 through 9. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to them, to the man, where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Cool. Thanks so much, Jess. Uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 9. Let's, let's try to get context and let's step into this story a little bit. Here's the first thing I want you to get, that uh, it's not a distant story. It's not someone else's story. It's your story and it's my story. Adam and Eve are representative of, of us. This is how we would act if we were in that story. Uh, their, their God is our God. Their, uh, their temptation is our temptation. Their dilemma is, is our dilemma. Their choice is our choice. Their curse is our curse. And yes, their hope is our hope. And we will get to hope by the end of the message. So hold on. But let's first get in the nitty gritty of the problem. Uh, also to set the context for this story, uh, previous Genesis 1 and 2, some of you may know that, uh, God is creating. It's poetry and, and it's kind of a, a poetic representation of how things came to be. And God is the master artist and he's creating with his words and each thing that he creates, he says it's tov or it's good. And then he takes dust and he blows his life in it. And that's you and that's me. And he says it's very good. So there's God, and, and that, that word represents this idea of the state of creation at this point, and that's a word, shalom, that we've talked about. We talked about it some last week. Uh, I define shalom as all things being right. Um, it's it, the very root of the word is wholeness or, or fitting together, like a puzzle that fits together. Uh, the opposite of shalom, one of the things aren't right, and, and they don't work together. So things at this point in the story prior to Genesis 3 are in a state of shalom. Uh, we could also define it as a state of shalom as uh, having right relationships with God, right relationships with one another, and right relationships with the world. Everything's hunky-dory. Uh, the end of chapter 2, if you can just you have, your, have your Bibles, you can glance right back to it, says Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. That kind of sums it up. They're just like, woo, this is great. Everything's as it should be. And then you can kind of cue the classical, peaceful, happy music for the soundtrack. And then you turn the page and then you get the whatever ominous music you would hear that, that uh, tells you that sinister activity's coming and evil's coming. And then cue the snake 
entering into the store. I heard a, I heard a, a story of a, of a first grade class and the teacher was telling them or reading them the story of the, the three pigs and it was at that point where the first pig was trying to build a house and encountered the guy with the wheelbarrow of, of, of straw and said, hey, I'd like to buy some of that straw. And the teacher stops and asks the class, um, what do you think the man said? And you know, the kid on his front row, he's like, yes, you. And she's like, he said, holy smokes, a talking pig. <laughs> and like, totally, a talking pig. And I think that that's, what, that's not the point of the story, obviously, but it's an accurate answer. Uh, and I think that's sometimes what we do with this story is we're like, holy smokes, a talking snake. And that's just an adventure and missing the point. Don't get sidetracked with that. This is a story to represent our story. This is a story how everything that's good and right went wrong. And it's your story and it's my story. Let's pay attention. So what's the point of the snake? So again, ancient Near East, a snake would have uh, meant evil to them, essentially. The New Testament writers looked back and attributed that snake to the presence of Satan. But the first readers, the Hebrew readers, would not have thought of that. They would have just thought of evil. Like a perfect sacrificial lamb was on one side of the equation as like the most perfect creature. The snake would have been all the way on the other. Uh, they were seen as unclean and devious and evil. So the, 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 the first readers or the first listeners to this story, when they see that everything's right and then a snake enters, they would have been like, oh no, Mr. Evil is here. Run. They would have known instantaneously something bad's about to happen. Uh, so Genesis 2 tells us that, that God is, is taking Adam and Eve on, on a walk through the garden, and he's given them a tour, and he's given them instructions. And he gives them one instruction, just one thing of something not to do. And he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you might be like, why? Well, that's God's job. Only God can determine what is good and evil. Adam and Eve, they were kind of childlike. They weren't equipped to determine what's good and evil. We aren't equipped. Only God. That's God's train. That's God's job. And if they were trying to step in and play God, that leads to the dumpster fire. That's where all things go wrong. Years ago, when my daughter Eden was younger, um, we, were, we were talking about, we were driving together. I think she's in the back seat, and even still in a car seat kind of thing. And, and, and she's like, Dad, if something ever happened to you while you're driving, I'd step in and drive. And I'd be like, no, you wouldn't. And she's like, yes, I would. I'd be like, no, you wouldn't. You, you can't even touch the pedals kind of deal. Her heart was good. I, I, I appreciated that. But it would have been it wouldn't have gone well. Uh, that's what it would be like for any of us to try to step into God's role. So that's, that's, that's the context of what the snake's going to try to interact with and mess with and, and is quite effective at doing so. So we're told the snake, the serpent, is more crafty or shrewd than any other animal. The serpent is evil and cunning. The word crafty is the opposite of the word. It's meant to interact with the word naked or naive. Is that, that's that word. So you have the crafty and cunning and evil serpent and the young, innocent, naive Adam and Eve. Like, what could go wrong? I mean, it's, it's going to go wrong. And so they begin to interact, and the crafty servant, the embodiment of evil, creates this false hypothetical by asking this question of Eve, but please note Adam's right beside her. They're together in this interaction. He's just quiet. And so the snake goes, did God really say you can't have anything from the tree in the garden? Did God really? He's trying to plant a seed of doubt and get them to kind of reconfigure what God told them. And Eve does that. She, she remembers, but she reconstructs it in a way that makes God less generous and more restrictive. So the snake's already, already got an end. And then the snake tells him, snake is, is the embodiment of evil is a master at half-truths. Never a full false statement, but kind of half-truths. Same thing Satan does with Jesus in the wilderness. So Satan goes, hey, if you eat from that tree, 
Like he won't really die, and he's thinking, not right away. <laughs> you won't die instantaneously. So he's working these half-truths, and it works. And so I think most of us know the story, and, and Adam and Eve, they, they eat from the tree, the one thing God told them not to do. And it's interesting, is God uh, puts, them, puts the order of the garden, God, and then Adam and Eve, and then they're supposed to rule over the land and the animals. They flip the entire thing. They, they flip it all over so the animal, the one they're supposed to rule at the top, the snake, and they submit to the snake and they put God at the very bottom. They're literally trying to play God. They want to be God. And the effect is that we're told the eyes of both of them were open and they instantaneously feel shame. And we'll get back to that later. They felt, remember the end of chapter two? No shame. Now they're drenched in shame. They realize they're not wearing pants. You know, they're like, Whoa. and so comically and sadly, they go and get these big fig leaves and try to, you know, sew them together and create loincloths. And it's just a tragic, tragic scene. They literally, uh, their life was in God's hands and God provided them with everything. God was a source of life. They took their lives and put it in their own hands. They were trying to play God and suddenly things were not as they were supposed to be. And it's a cascading snowball effect that that choice begins to literally wreck everything. All right, here's, here's the idea that I want us to wrestle with today. And it's an important idea. We must grasp the enormity of what is wrong if we want to grasp the enormity of what is being made right. And simply put, if we want to really understand the beauty and the enormity of the gospel, we have to understand how devastating sin is. And sin is the problem that the gospel is trying to solve. Sorry. So let's talk about this word sin. Uh, we're trying to be precise around here to give really concrete, clear definitions of what something is before we, we talk about it. And, and scripture is our ultimate source. So we live in a world where I think most people, even followers of Jesus, try to minimize sin. We try to shrink sin down. It's not that big of a deal. We talk more about sinfulness with respect to like a decadent dessert. Than, than behavior. It's used to describe kind of, oh, I'm being naughty or being a rebel. It's often misconstrued as trying to keep people from having fun. And increasingly, people don't even like the idea or concept of sin. Who are you to say anything's right or wrong? I can do whatever I want, which sounds exactly like Adam and Eve. But we have to talk about sin within the context of the Bible. And the Bible talks a ton about the origin and the characteristics and the power of sin. Uh, sin is the problem the gospel is trying to solve. So if we're going to understand how big the gospel is, we have to understand the size and the devastation of sin. So the, the Bible does not provide one clear, concise definition of sin. It provides what I call a kaleidoscope of, of definitions. And note uh, that you can always go uh, to our webpage and you can click on uh, the notes for any of the speakers. And so in the notes this week, um, I'm going to mention a number of different definitions from the Bible, sin, Greek or Hebrew words, but there's uh, scripture passages you can go and check out where they're at, but I'm not going um, to list all those today. All right, so a couple different Hebrew or Greek words to describe sin, just to show you that kaleidoscope of sin. Sin is used uh, in, in, with regards, uh, one, one word means to break the law. Uh, another word means to pass over a boundary line or, or beyond a limit. Uh, one word means to rebel or reject God's way or design. Another word means to bend or to twist something. So if something's straight, sin makes it crooked. 
Interestingly, if you think of the, the Nazi swastika, that took a cross and bent it and distorted it. That's the idea there of sin. And then the one, if you, if you know any Greek or Hebrew word with regard to sin, you probably know the one that means to miss the mark. That's the one that most people talk about, but just know there's lots of them. And to miss the mark, it was an archery term. It's, you know, it's not that like you're purposely trying to miss the mark. You're trying to hit the mark and you can't hit the target, that's the idea. So that's kind of a cool concept in words. And now the next time you go to a Blazer game and they're playing the opponent, every time they miss a shot, you can be like, sin! You can yell it out, just not for the Blazers, just for the opponent. People will probably stare at you, so don't do that. That's, that's a kaleidoscope of definition. So it's not just one concise one, it's lots of ways of talking about how things are not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible declares sin to be our enemy and the consequence of sin consistently, the Bible says, is death, death, death. And death doesn't just affect humanity, but all of creation. So it's not just death for humans, but death for pretty much everything. Sin also in scripture kind of takes on a life of its own. So Augustine had this quote that said, sin becomes the consequence of sin. So it's the idea as the writers of scripture, especially in the New Testament are talking about it, it kind of takes on a life of its own and kind of becomes its own person. It's like acting as a person or a force. So kind of like we sin and we fall short, but then the collective decisions, kind of the group think, creates this like group brain kind of thing where sin has its own power that then causes more people to sin. It's kind of this crazy snowball effect. All right, so... We'll get lost in all that. I, I like to give clear, concise definitions. So let's kind of come back to the main idea we started with at, at the top. This comes from uh, Cornelius Plantinga's book, which is my favorite book on sin, I guess if you can have a favorite book on sin, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And Plantinga defi defines sin as shalom breaking. I like that. And I think we're gonna go with that. Sin is shalom breaking. If shalom is everything being right, or everything being whole or fitting together exactly as God designed it, sin is any act or lack of action that breaks shalom. Or just another way, maybe even a simpler way of talking about sin is it's not the way it's supposed to be. And all of this in the season, if I ask you, you could list tons of stuff that you know in your mind and heart and your gut, you're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. What causes us to sin? Like, why, why did Adam and Eve do that? Why would we have done the same thing if we were there in the garden? Why do we do the same thing? It's this thing in us that we want to be God. We want to be the captain of our own ship. To be blunt, we want to sit on the throne. We want to dethrone God. It is a very real game of thrones. Some, one person called it cosmic treason. We want to do things our way and not God's way. And sin is the effect and the reality of trying to do life apart from God. And it's crazy that we do this. It's like cutting off the branch we're trying to sit on. It makes no sense and it leads to a dumpster fire. So sin breaks shalom in numerous ways, and we're going to briefly talk about three of those. Uh, if shalom is being in right relationship with God, with others in the world, sin it breaks our relationship with God, it breaks our relationship with one another, and it breaks our relationship with the world. Let's, let's look briefly at each of those from Scripture, and we'll also come back and interact with Genesis 3. First, sin breaks our relationship with God. Let's look back uh, to Genesis 3, this verse. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, where 
are you? To, man, Genesis 1 or 2, everything's perfect. Everything's together. They're walking in community with God. And then suddenly, because of sin, because they're trying to play God, they're trying to grab the throne, they're in shame. They're hiding behind makeshift clothes and fig leaves. And sin causes us to hide from God. Sin clearly broke their relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with God. And God says, where are you? Adam answers, uh, verse 10, this didn't get read earlier. I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. They're fearful now of God because I was naked and I hid. So from naked and unashamed to now naked and ashamed. Devastating. It like absolutely cracked the relationship with God and, and broke it. It's a travesty. And shame is just a sense that we're not enough. And of course, if we're trying to play God, we're not enough. We're not meant to be God. We're meant to reflect God's glory and serve God and be in vital relationship with God and get life from God. We're not God. And every time we try to, of course, we're confronted with the reality that, that we're, not, we're not enough. Of course we are. So this is not just Adam and Eve's story. This is my story. This is your story. The word Adam literally means human. So if you don't think that it's true, we're supposed to step into Adam's shoes. The writer is telling us that. And then we see this theme throughout scripture again and again and again. The prophet Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. The book of Judges describes the people of those who did right in their own eyes. Man, that, science, that, that sums up the philosophy of our day. Uh, back to Isaiah, but your iniquities, another of these, these Hebrew words for sin, have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.21 that we're alienated from God because of our evil behavior. And then Proverbs, the Hebrew book of wisdom says, there is a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it ends in death. We're like the little children. I'm sure I did it. My parents will probably remind me of this. We're like the little children that get mad at their parents and they're kind of petulant and angry and they throw a couple things in their backpack and they storm out the door. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm running away from home. I'm not coming back. And you're just like, good luck with that. That's not a road that leads to life. It's a road that leads to death. The scriptures, uh, here's some words uh, that sum up what, what scripture says sin leaves in us. Sin leaves humanity estranged, trapped, enslaved, defiled, and condemned. When someone's on death row and uh, they're walking that final walk to, 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 to meet their end, uh, the prisoners oftentimes, or even the guards, will yell, dead man walking, and that's what we are. That's what sin does to us. It absolutely breaks our relationship with God and cuts us off from the one who is our life. But sin doesn't just break our relationship with God, and that's where we almost exclusively focus our attention. That's really all the shrunken gospel addresses, but the full gospel addresses the other two things as well. Sin breaks our relationship with others. Again, we see this in Genesis 3. If we go back and, and, and begin to read through and do that sometime this week, you'll see quickly, right? Everything's perfect between Adam and Eve. They're just united. They're one. God created them to be together. Everything's wonderful. It's shalom. And then all of a sudden, it begins to sin. Not only breaks the relationship with God, but one another. And God asked them what went on. Adam instantaneously throws Eve under the bus, just doesn't miss a beat. And then she throws the snake under the bus. And by the end of the chapter, it's, it says that Adam's trying to rule her and that doesn't go well at all. It's just this, it's not only shame now, but it's a blame game. Uh, it's a passing of the buck. 
And so this sin that separated Adam and Eve from, from God is quickly snowballing and affecting their relationship with one another. We see this if we turn the pages into Genesis 4. We see Cain and Abel and the different sacrifices, if you know that story, and there's jealousy there. And, and God comes to Cain and says, Cain, watch out. I can see your heart. Literally, God says, sin is crouching at your door, but Cain did not listen. Cain wanted to go to his own way. Cain thought he was God, and he kills his brother over jealousy. So within one, within two chapters from Shalom, brothers are murdering each other. By chapter 14 of Genesis, entire nation states are at war. That's how quickly sin not only just affects our personal lives, but our social lives as well. It separates us from one another. As I said last week, rather strongly, but I mean it, um, I can't remember a time in my lifetime where I've seen more division, more separation between communities, between families, between churches over stuff like mask and vaccine and critical race theory and who did you vote for. It's just, it's mind boggling how much division's out there. And I was thinking, well, at least we still agree on some things. Some things that we still agree on is that it's super annoying when that one person keeps replying all to the group email, right? I mean, totally, we can all agree on that. Super annoying when someone's in the left passing lane going slower than the speed limit and clowns are creepy. I think we can all agree on those things and that's about it. Everything else we, we, just, we just disagree on. There's just, and that all started in the garden. It all comes from sin and brokenness. This past Saturday uh, is our family Sabbath. And we kind of set it aside just to be together and just to slow the pace down. And because I, I work on Sunday, obviously. So, uh, and it's awesome. I really look forward to it. And I was just in a grumpy mood. I was in a grouchy mood. And, and um, my, my oldest daughter, Eden, just had, was trying to have some lighthearted fun with me. And I just did not respond well. And then I tried to kind of co-opt her sister, uh, Jubilee, into kind of being on my team to get back at her. And then Eden got mad at Jubilee, and Jubilee got mad at Eden, and then Corey got mad at me, which she should have. <laughs> and uh, everything came apart like that because I was a jerk. I mean, it was that quickly where we were slow, but everything was great. And then it's just like, wah! And I doubt that, that we're alone. I doubt that the Rosen Steels are alone in that. All that started in the garden. And it's effective sin. It doesn't just break our personal relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with one another. And then finally, it also breaks our relationship with the world. What do I mean by that? I mean it, it breaks what we are meant to do. Our primary responsibility is those created in the image of God. Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis 1 now, 26 through 28. Here's our job. Here's your job. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We are created in God's image to rule. That word image, the Hebrew word, was also used for all these statues that people would create to worship foreign gods, and they'd be all over the land and up on the high hills. And the people believed that those created statues, that wooden statues, the Bible says again and again is kind of a joke, but the people believed that they held the power of the God. There was a piece of the God in them. And the writer of Genesis is using that idea in a compelling way to tell us our true calling. It's saying that all of us were created in God's image. We're meant to reflect God and represent God and give God glory. And so it's, it's the idea, of, it's a weird term, but it's an effective term, a vice regent. And a vice regent were, were rulers in different parts of the world, in different parts of the country, were meant to represent the ruler. They actually had the authority of the ruler we're called to be vice regents in God's kingdom on his creation and all that's been corrupted by sin. 
It's been devastated. The image of God is not gone in us, but it's distorted. You know, uh, you go to like a, a carnival or a circus and you go through those fun houses, those fun house mirrors. If you've ever stood in one, I think there's a picture that'll come up. Like it's us, but it's like, it's funny because it's like, whoa, that's not me. That looks really weird. It's distorted. That's what sin has done. It's distorted the image of God and it's wrecked our relationship with the world and with the earth. In Genesis 3, one of the curses of sin is that now the ground is cursed and will be filled with thistles and thorns. And any of us that do yard work, <laughs> we just see that all the time. I would add not only thistles and thorns, but moss. Like, what is the deal with moss in the Pacific Northwest? I'm an East Coast kid. We don't have moss. Like, we don't do moss out there. And out here, it, like, grows on the sidewalks. And then last year, I was looking up at our roof, and I noticed our roof's covered with moss. Like, what is that? Like, moss is definitely an effect of, of the fall of mankind and, and sin. Uh, so we have this broken relationship. We're to be God's vice regents. We're to stand in his place and reflect his glory and image and rule well and steward well his creation on God's behalf. And all of that is wrecked. And we understand that with Paul's effective words in Romans 1 now. Paul says, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped created things instead of the creator. And then later in Romans 3, Paul says, we have all, all of us fallen short of the glory of God. The, the, the shrunken gospel focuses only on how sin breaks our relationship with God. The full gospel, the true gospel, covers not only how it, sin's broken our relationship with God, but how it's broken our relationship with one another and how it's broken our relationship with the world. Um, sin affects everything. Uh, sin affects uh, people and playgrounds and piggy banks and porcupines and panda bears and pasta and politics and Priuses and pastors. I'm doing alliteration. My point is, I'm being silly kind of, but it affects everything. There's nothing that you can't think of that sin hasn't corrupted and touched. And I've been back to our main idea. We have to grasp the enormity of what is wrong to grasp the enormity of what is made right. I wanna uh, do something for those of you online, this might be new. We've done a few things like this over the, the last year and a half, um, so work with me. But I think it's appropriate to offer you the gift of space for a time of confession. And confession is not a time uh, meant to in invoke shame on you or how horrible you are. It's, it's meant to be a gift. It's meant to bring forgiveness and freedom, to bring life and light into places and spaces of darkness and death. And some of you might be looking for like the end button right now. Like I'm out, like I don't want to do this confession thing. I don't. Hang in there with me, hang in there with me. Back to Cornelius's book. I love, this is one of my favorite quotes in all the book. Please listen to this. I need to listen to this. He says this, self-deception about our sin is a narcotic. It's a tranquilizing and disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. What's devastating about it is when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play the right ones or even recognize them in the performance of others. Eventually we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes that God plays in the human life. The music of creation and the still greater music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us, and the idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. That's what happens to us. We get numbed. 
if we don't take time and have a rhythm of confessing our sins, of seeing where sin has wrecked us and wrecked our relationships and wrecked our relationship with the world. We have to do this faithfully. Protestants don't do it well. Catholics do it great. Protestants don't do it well. The Apostle John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I want you to just find a space and maybe you're with other people and you just kind of have to find a space in your living room. Maybe you're in your car, maybe you're by yourself and that's perfect. And I'm just gonna give you three simple prompts and just leave it between you and the spirit of God and just give you a little bit of time to think through and confess sins along each of the three categories we've talked about. So let's, let's go to prayer. The first prompt is, how have you broken shalom in your relationship with God? And when you're aware of that, ask God for forgiveness. The second question is, how have you broken shalom in your relationship with others? Uh, ask God for forgiveness. And then finally, how have you broken shalom in your relationship with the world? Ask God for forgiveness. These are some traditional prayers of the church that we pray after our time of confession. And again, these are available online in the notes. But loving Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing our sins in your body on the cross. By your wounds, we are healed. And by your blood, we are cleansed. We receive your forgiveness now. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins through Jesus Christ our Lord, and strengthen us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit all our days and all God's people said, amen. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. Like that was the easiest point ever to prove. We could just do a brief look at our lives and history to see that sin breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with one another. It breaks our relationship with the world. That is important to understand. And we must grasp the enormity of what is wrong if we're gonna grasp the enormity of what is made right through the gospel, the full gospel. And we see this we see the seeds of this at the end of Genesis 3. I promised you hope. And just look at the end of Genesis 3. God's like, where are you? And I hope that gives you hope. God knew what they had done. God's coming after him. He's a pursuing God. He finds them drenched in shame, standing in makeshift clothes. What a sad sight. It had to break his heart. And yet God didn't add on to the shame. He didn't even condemn them. It says that he what? He clothed them. And for the original readers and listeners, this would have been a really crucial phrase. This, this statement, clothe them, was reserved for people of honor. It's what you did for people of honor. God doesn't shame us in our sin. He honors us. And it said he clothed them with animal skins. This is the first sacrifice for sins. This is a holy makeover. And then God promises to make things right. And here's, here's, he says that the seed of the snake, the seed of the evil one will perpetuate the lives of all who do evil and they will do battle with the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will prevail. And here's the promise. 
Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the snake here. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This promise certainly refers to Jesus and his church as we look back. Uh, Jesus is the seed, the promised seed of the Holy One. Uh, the, the evil one will strike his heel on the cross, but ultimately Jesus will crush the snake's head. And this is how Revelation puts it forth, that, 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 that Satan is seen as a serpent that is crushed and defeated by Jesus in the church. Jesus, to use my friend uh, Tim Mackey's line, Jesus is the snake crusher. I love that. And Jesus crushes the snake's head in the most unexpected ways through the ultimate act of self-sacrificial love on the cross. Jesus turns everything upside down. And on the cross, Jesus breaks the power of sin and death and evil and takes his rightful seat on the throne. And the full gospel, the big gospel, the beautiful gospel is that Jesus invites anyone and everyone to look to him as life-giving king, the snake crusher. And he invites us into his kingdom to partner with him today in making all things right. The last scene we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus is sitting on a throne. And Jesus proclaims one day, one day, and I've started that process now, but one day I will make everything new. We must grasp the enormity of what is wrong to grasp the enormity of what is being made right. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for, uh, I hope, a positive and hopeful message on sin. Uh, it, it, to talk about sin, to see how devastating sin has been to our own hearts into our families, into our churches, into the world forever. How sin has just, just left mayhem in its path. How it's left us seeing dumpster fires everywhere can, can really get us down. It, it just really can. And I confess that to you, God. But I am hopeful because we see the enormous and the devastating impact of sin, but we see how big and beautiful and amazing your gospel is. That it's not just you coming in and saving us so that we can die and go to heaven one day, but you are invading earth through King Jesus and through the power of your Holy Spirit, your church will come alive and partner with you and enter into your kingdom today to bring life to all who are in a state of death and to hopefully, by God's grace, make all things new. Help us to be the type of church that that's happening in. Uh, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.